Well, it's good to be home. It's good to be back. In the end of last week, Pasha Shmini, we began the laws of uh, impurity, Tuma, and purification in Sefer Vayikra. And these continue through our Pasha Tazria this week and next week, Metzora, up until the end of uh, chapter 15 of Leviticus of Vayikra. But the cause of Tuma in the chapter 11 that we read yesterday um, is different from the following chapters. The former deals with impurity arising from a person's contact with death, with a carcass of an impure animal, from an outside source. From chapter 12, the Torah addresses those forms of impurity that arise from internal to the body. And those are in, in chapter 12, the Yoledet, that is, those impurities that come from a woman, a woman following childbirth, and then impurity of the Metzora, the leper, in chapter 13 and 14, and in chapter 15, the impurity of the Zav, a man who has had a seminal emission or a menstrual woman uh, called a Zava. These are now, in our parasha, impurity is not dealing from external sources, but from internal, internal sources. And I want to focus today, uh, and we'll start with the Pasuk. And this is a woman who has given birth. You can see that a woman who gives birth has to wait. She becomes Tamei for eight days, or depending on whether it's a boy or a girl. And then it says, Either way, whether she waits double the amount of time for a girl versus a boy, Tavi keves ben shnatala ola u ben yona otolachatas. It's unique that she brings two offerings. She has to bring an ola and a chatas. And, and look at the sequence. First the ola, then a chatas. Now, ve'im lotim sayada dewe, she can't afford the chatas because a chatas has to be an animal. Then she can still bring uh, two doves or a, a, a dove bird, a, a turtle dove or a pigeon. Okay, so we have a problem here. A, it's unique that she doesn't have to bring a full carbon chatas if she can't afford it. That's unique. And what else is unique is that she, she brings two carbonos. What's that about? So we have to go to Rashi. And Rashi introduces us to something very interesting. And Rashi says, Echad ola ve'echad l'chatas. Rashi is already pointing us to the problem. He makes this very radical statement that the scripture put the Ola offering first because it says Ola and then Chatas, and that is only regarding to the reading of the Torah. Remember, when you bring a, a carbon Chatas, the Kohen would read the section of the Torah that deals with that particular offering before they would bring the carbon. And in this case, according to Rashi, they would read the section of the Ola before the section of the sin offering, even though, according to the Gemara and Halakha, the sin offering is always brought first. So Rashi is saying, when it comes to the text, 
we read the Ola first, and when it comes to the Korban, uh, we read the Chatos first. Now, this may be dancing on the head of a pin, but if I can share with you my little scribble, and you can see that the text here, when you're reading the text, the Kohen reads the Ola first, then the Chatos. When it comes to the Korban, um, you bring the Chatos first, and then the Ola. So let's compare and contrast what's really going on here. The prescribed offerings for a woman who gives birth is a sheep within its first year as an ola, and a young dove or a turtle dove as a sin offering. And if the woman can't afford the sheep as her ola, then she can take two young doves or two turtle doves as the one as the ola and one as the sin offering. That's what the Pasuk says. And Rashi comments, based on a Gemara in Zvachim, that the Torah is imprecise. And if we look at the Gemara in Zvachim, we will see that the Gemara says exactly what the halacha should be. And that is that there's a paradigm for all sin offerings, that they should precede the burnt offering. The chatos must precede the ola that comes with them. And in the case of a bird sin offering, the sin offering and the bird, burnt offering, whether the case of an animal or a sin, there's a precedence of one over the other. That is what the Gemara says. Okay, and so the rule is that in a mixed sacrifice, there has to be the Ola after the Chatos. Uh, what, what, what is, what's going on here? That's the question. So what, what is an Ola and what is a Chatos? Let's go back to my scribble. So the Chatos is a sin offering. It means it's an apology. So by saying you first have to make the Chatos, you have to surmeira, you have to apologize, you have to appease. You bring a Chatos uh, as, as, as an offering saying, listen, I did something wrong and here is my carbon. What is the Ola? The Ola is a present to restore the relationship. So anyone who's married knows <laughs> that if you uh, offend your wife, first you have to owe them an apology. That's the proper etiquette. You can't just send flowers. You first got to say, I'm sorry. And in my case, you have to offer profuse apology and do a lot of atoning for past mistakes. And then it's appropriate to give a present. Presents themselves should not be expected to work instead of an apology. And therefore, the chatos always precedes the ola. The chatos, which is the apology, which is that which the kohanim participate in the chatos, precedes the ola, which is completely burned. Which then begs the question, why is Rashi bringing this idea that the Torah is confusing us by saying, when it comes to the reading of the text, we do the Ola first and the Chatos second. And that is really my question today. That is, what is this switcheroo? What is this reversal? We started off by saying, yes, the Gemara tells us in Zvachen that you have to first make the apology and the appeasement that always comes first before the gift. And yet Rashi tells us, the sequence in our verse is the reverse. First, she brings the Ola and then the Chatos. Let's just dive in a little bit to the Midrash. 
Why is she doing this? Why does she have to bring anything? I mean, to be quite honest, a woman just gave birth. The most wondrous miracle in the course of life is the appearance of life, the birth of a child. And when a child is born, it's greeted with simcha and happiness because every child is the highest expression of joy, joyous creativity. And so the act of childbirth, the most significant creative act in human life, and that which is created in the image of God, means that just as God is creative, so does man have the capacity uh, to create. And therefore, it's perplexing to note this remarkable, unique law that a woman who gives birth is considered in a state of tumah inside her, tumah, ritual impurity, for a specific time after childbirth. And if it creative act is a creating act imitating God, then why should the act of childbirth, the most creative natural act of which a human being is capable of, bring with it the side effect of being in Tumah? Clearly, something darker is going on. Something darker is going on. And so I must share this medrash. I first saw this in the Gemara. So I'll quote the Gemara and then go earlier, okay? When Avraham says to the Rabboni Shalms, the Gemara and Megillah, how will I know that your promises are going to be true? So he says, well, let's make a Brit. Okay. So that's all very good. You're telling me we can bring Korbonos, we can be a Chatos, and we can be an Ola, as long as the Beis Amikdosh is around. What would be with my children who seek penance after uh, erring from the path of righteousness? Uh, what should we do after the Beis Amikdosh is kaim? So he said to Abraham, Oh, I already wrote in the Torah a text that is the order of the Korbanot meant for the temple, but it's in the text, and the Torah survives the temple. Aha! Kol zaman shekorin bohen, as long as they continue to read it, to read the text, male anik alehem ke'ilu makrivin lifnai korban. I will attribute it to them. I will deem it as if they had sacrificed an offering before me, and I will forgive them. It's an absolutely stunning agadita in which Abraham, way before the Torah is given, is taught about a korban. He's taught about the Brit. He's taught about taking me an eglomishuleshes. And that will be the framework for Am Yisrael bringing korbanot. Then the Torah is given that tells us the seder of the korbanot. Then comes the Beis Amikdash when we perform the Korbanot, and then God assuages Abraham's anxiety, who sees that the Beis Amikdash will not always be forever. And God then tells him this radical idea that the reading of the text of Torah will be considered sufficient for him as if they had done it themselves. 
That is this, as if they had performed it themselves. Okay. Then the Gemara says, very interesting Agadata. First of all, the Kliyakar that says, V'kiper aleha hakoin v'tara, on this mutso, on this Yoledes who gives um, the atonement offering, the Kliyakar points us in the right direction. He says that this atonement, al avan hakodem shel chava, he points us back to the origin creation story. Shegaram la tsar haleda. This kapara isn't just about you, my dear. It's not just about having a baby. It's about the original sin and the punishment for the original sin, which is what? Tsar haleda, that you will give birth with pain. Umitoch tsara ulai hiticha dvarim klape mala. In that tsar, she throws her words heavenly. She criticizes the Almighty. What is this? I mean, such birth pain. She regrets to again ever to have to be with her husband, as the Gemara in Nita 31 tells us. And so she then gives birth and forgets her pain. But now she has to bring an atonement. And what is the atonement? Let's, let's now go to that famous Medrash. And when God curses Eve and says, you will give your children, you will bear them with pain, the El Isheikh Teshukateh, and your craving will be to your husband, the Medrash there points us, this is the earliest text we have before the Gemara, as follows. When the woman is on the birthing stool, this is what the Kliyakar is referring to. He omeret od eni I am never going to have relations with my husband again. It's not worth it. But the Holy One, blessed is he, says to her, Go back, go back, go back. He says to her, part of the curse is not only that you will have children in pain, but your desire will be back to your husband. Return to your craving. You will return to your craving. I mean, it's an outstanding medrash that you will yet crave that intimacy. So the question then is, what is really going on? Rabbi Brechet, Rabbi Shimon, Meshem, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai Omru. And now in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, Rabbi Brechia says in his name, why isn't it that she should bring a proper chatos? Why do we let her get away with just turtle doves and pigeons? Why is that? And so Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai said, Lefiche rifrefro belibo, because she rifrefro belibo. She kind of muttered and fluttered and murmured in her heart only. It wasn't an oath that requires a chatos and a reversal of the oath, as the Gemara tells us in the Dorim. It doesn't require a full expiation because it was just in the heart. We don't legislate what's going in your heart. It has to be an action, it has to be a speech action. And therefore, Rabbi Shimon Bayochai says, Leficha tovi korban merufrof. <laughs> He puns on the word rifrafa, 
Rifrafa meaning she wavered, she fluttered in her heart. So we can bring a korban marufrof, a waving offering, which is what? Oh, the two turtle doves and the two yonas. That is, she doesn't bring a sheep or a goat, normally brought by one who violates a vow not to have relations or not to do anything for that matter. Rather, it suffices with the relatively insignificant and equivocal wavering offering of the two birds. This brings us back to Rabbi Shimon Bayachai in the Gemara. And the Rabbi Shimon Bayachai in the Gemara had said, Shalu Talmide Rabbi Shimon Bayachai, Mipne Ma Omra Korban. Why does, in fact, a Yoledes have to bring a Korban in the first place? What did she do wrong? And so Rabbi Shimon Bayachai says, at the time when she is in her, she's crouching to give her birth on the birth stool, she impulsively and swears that she'll never go back to husband. So because of that, she has to bring a korban. And we learned in the Midrash that that carbon is not a full carbon; it is just a wavering carbon of the of the doves. Okay, let's go back to our our scribble. So, what we come to learn today to answer the question: Why, in fact, the sequence is reversed? That Rashi informs us of that this sequence of Ola and Khatos is reversed, we now know that in the halachas of Korbanot, you first bring the Khatos. That's the apology in the appeasement. Then you bring the Ola, which is the gift. However, as Abraham was reassured by the Almighty, that when it comes to the Kriya, when it comes to the reading of the Torah by the, by the Kohen, whether he's bringing the Korban, or whether we're just laning the Torah ourselves and studying the Torah, the Parsha of the Ola precedes the Parsha of the Chatos. That's what we've come from. Okay? And so the question then becomes, what is the deeper level of all of this? And I'm reminded of the principle in Kabbalah that creating a child is like God creating the world. And in the very creation of the world, according to Kabbalah, the same principle holds true. You cannot have Yetzirah, a production of something new in the universe, without Tumah. The creative act involves an area of darkness, of shade, something negative, an element of pain and agony and frustration. Remember, according to the Arizal, the creation of the world was a catastrophe. There were other worlds created before, and this was just the iteration of prior, the Sheva Malachim, as they call it, the seven kingdoms. This was just the seventh. This was the, the lowest level, and, and there was too much light, and therefore it was a smashing of the vessels, and the light was too much. And so there was an element of pain and agony and frustration in the creation of the world. That just as God gives life and vitality to all the world in His holiness, so did some of this life-giving holiness 
become entrapped and ensconced in evil. And therefore, this gives rise to the demonic. This gives rise to the, the, the evil in the world. He gives rise to the world, and as a side effect, there arose evil as well. And therefore, Tuma, uncleanliness, the Sitra Achra, this dark side of the divine, accompanies the cosmic act of Yetzirah. And I think that that could be applied uh, to what we're saying here. That is, in the birth of a child, there is an act of Yetzirah, of creation, but along with it comes the residue, the tumah, the blood, the, 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 the appurtenances that accompany that. And so she has to wait a period of time before she can then enter back into the, the, through the Korban. Now, Shimshon Rafal Hirsch, the great 19th century German rationalist, suggests a different understanding of the root and nature of Tumah than I just quoted you uh, from Kabbalah. In his view, Tumah arouses from any encounter with evidence that man must willy-nilly submit to the power of physical forces. And I thought that was a very compelling rational uh, argument. Man can master, rule, and use even his sensuous body with all its innate forces, urges, powers, with godlike free self-decision, as we see in Europe today, within the limits of and for the accomplishment of the duties set by the laws of morality. All these are truths which, in the face of human frailty and the powers of the forces of nature, are to be brought again and again to the minds of living people, so that they are conscious of their unique position of freedom in the midst of the physical world. He's saying something very profound. You're born into the world without your consent. You die in this world without your consent. And yet, through life, you have the free will to do most of the things you want to do. Now, the most dramatic and awesome evidence of submission of man to physical forces is death, the most dramatic and severe of all forms of Tumah. And that's his whole theology of Tumah uh, around death. But birth, according to Hirsch, is no less a demonstration of the fact of man's bondage to his biology. I love the expression. We are bonded to our biology, our genes, our backgrounds. 99% of what we do is biologically predetermined. The mother herself, under the fresh impression of her physically, completely, passively, and painfully having to submit to the forces of the physical laws of nature at the most sublime procedure of her earthly calling to produce a child, has to reestablish again the consciousness of her own spiritual height. So for Hirsch, the act brings her down into the forces of necessity and takes that her down from her spiritual heights. And according to Hirsch, we may recognize that there are two sources of tumor rather than one. And this brings me to my, my point, death and sexuality, the tumor of death and the tumor of birth. Death and sexuality strip man of his flimsy layer of control, domination, intellectual, and spiritual order, 
and render him naked before the forces of biological nature which hold him in thrall. And so a spiritually naked man cannot enter the Mishkan or draw close to the divine presence, but must observe a period of Tumah before re-entering the sphere. This is a very positive understanding of Tumah in Hirsch that I was very moved by. But that brings us to Herr Rabbina, Dr. Freud, that Thanatos and Eros are the two drives that Hirsch predicted 30 years before, before Rabbina Freud taught us this idea. Thanatos and Eros, that we are strung between those two poles. And they, in fact, in French, they call the act of sexuality le petit mort, that little death that there is that moment of loss of self-awareness in the act of lovemaking that's similar to the act of dying. Or misas nashika, as we call those who died, like Reb Chaim Kanievsky a week ago, those who died the misas nashika, with the kiss of death. There is an erotic quality uh, to both life and death, birth and death. Which brings me to my darker side. <laughs> And the way I see my little scribbled note today, that the reversal that Rashi is pointing to us, and I always tell you this story, that Rashi actually is seeing Richard the Lionheart walking past him, killing Jews on his way through Europe to conquer the infidel and to get back the temple for Christ. And Rashi is seeing that before his eyes. And he's trying to make sense of this in his interpretation of Torah. And he is telling us something very profound, if I may read him as against the grain. Rashi is actually telling us that when we are reading the Pasha of the Mitzorah, and we are trying to make sense of it, and we're trying to suggest that the sequence is wrong, and he is actually saying the following. Lo hikdima hakatuv elo Scripture put in the Ola regarding its reading. That the Ola, that gift that we give to the might Almighty, which normally should have followed the apologies and the appeasements of the divine, when it comes to after the Besamikdosh, after the destruction, after the Galuts, at the end of Galut, when we see the mass casualties and we see the killing fields, then everything is reversed. That there is no need first for the apology and the appeasement for the divine. Why? Because the creation was a setup. It was a divine setup. The act of creation and built into the biology of a woman. The act of creating was a catastrophe. Because built into it is millions of people displaced and killed and children walking around without parents. And therefore, it is reversed. Rashi is saying as he sees Galut a millennia ago, and we can double down on Rashi after two millennia of this horror. One for an Ola, one for a sin offering. Lo hikdima hakato of Elulamikra. The scripture put the Ola first regarding its reading. Because God said, when you, after the Khurban, after all of this is over, I will let you just read. 
I'll let you just read. It'll be just as good as if you brought it for me, meaning as if you'd asked me for the forgiveness, because I understand. I understand that after history, after what you've suffered through history and what you are suffering through history, then the mere reading of the text is sufficient. And so I think my fellow colleagues here, that, that that is the message of the reversal. Sometimes we need to reverse course. We have to try and make sense theologically of what's going on. If we're going to engage the divine, we have to hold truth to power, even if the power is divine. And we have to understand that sometimes, like Rashi, like Abraham, we have been given a license to understand that things are not what they should be, that creation is built in with this terrible Shvirat HaKelim that allows for the Putins and the Hitlers and, and the rest of them to, to, to wreak havoc and use the citizens, the innocent bystanders, as the fodder for their machinations. So may we all see a, a turnaround. Maybe we see a geula that comes from all of this. Thank you.